confess to you that I'm no HR savant um, or particularly experienced at hiring a lot of people. And so how do you how do you get the right people? So I went and asked others for advice who do that more often and um, tried to figure out what are you looking for, who are you trying to find, so on and so on. And my friend Russ Moore gave me three things to remember when you're hiring someone. And I, I actually remembered what Russ says. Russ runs a, a company called United Ortho here in, in our area. And he said, first, when, you, when you're looking three elements of a great teammate, you want someone with character. You want someone with competency, and you want someone who has chemistry with your organization. I'm like, oh, good, he alliterates things. He must have been a pastor at one time because I can remember those things, and Russ was all of that. And um, I'm like, oh, character, okay, I'm in on that. Um, so you set out to find those types of things, and uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world sometimes. And then I listened to other people around me and said, well, you're going to learn one-third from the resume. You're going to learn one-third from the interview, and one-third's going to be a surprise. And you're like, uh, can we mitigate the surprise part? I don't know if we can or not. And so you uh, hunt for that qualities. And what I want to share with you this morning out of Philippians chapter 2 are two guys that were part of Paul's apostolic team and the qualities and the things that he looked for in team members as uh, he got people to surround him doing ministry. But before we do that, let's go to an example in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Again, if you're uh, not used to your Bible, it's so much fun to try to figure out. It can be mildly frustrating at times because the author is so much smarter than all of us. But at the same time, uh, he... he, uh, He feeds sheep as well as giraffes, if that makes sense. Puts the food on the lower table, and some are way up high just to keep the real intelligent people interested for us commoners. We're happy to eat down at the lower level. But uh, Acts chapter 15, if you're not used to it, it's page 924 in the Bible in front of you. This is uh, an interesting uh, story. Paul's getting ready to start a second missionary journey with his friend Barnabas. So in verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's, let's return and visit the brothers in every city. We proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed to Cyprus, Paul took Silas, departed, having commended by the brothers the grace of the Lord, and went through Syria, Cilicia, uh, Cilicia, excuse me, strengthening the churches. So here we have a potential team member, John Mark, and two guys. One guy says, he's going to be a good team member, and Paul goes, I know this guy. How does he know him? Go back to chapter 13 in Acts, just one page to your left. Verse 4 and 5, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went to Seleucia, and from there they uh, sailed to Cyprus. They arrived at Salamis and proclaimed the word of of God in the synagogue and the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now verse uh, 13, same chapter. Paul and his companions set sail from Epaphos and came to Perga, to Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John was a trusted part of the inner circle of the team, but when 
the next move came, he went home. For, for Paul, that was like, I don't want that guy on my team. I, 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 I don't have confidence in this guy on my team. There was a standard for who he would have alongside of him. And what we're going to meet in Philippians chapter 2 are two guys who meet that standard. Now, if you don't mind me uh, tilting this towards Mother's Day a little bit, because this really isn't the greatest Mother's Day passage I've ever seen in my life. Hey, let's look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Yeah, Um, These are the kind of men, moms, you want to raise. These are the kind of men that you want to demand your children, I, and you can demand your daughters to be here too. It's not just a male thing. This is the type of character that you want to see displayed in your child's heart. This is what you long for when, when they come out of that womb and they put that baby in your arms in that hospital bed, or nowadays nobody goes to the hospital in that barn or wherever you have your kids, um, you know, and they put that baby in your arms and you're like, oh, and you look down in that face. Do you remember that moment? Any of you have had that moment? What are you going to become? You've already been a pain coming into the world. How much pain will you be going through the world, right? And uh, you don't know. And, you know, you usually look at that child and go, you're going to be great. You're going to do great things awesome and great things that's who you're gonna be and I'm gonna be there for every moment of it and then they go to the bathroom in their pants and you're like wow this is not the start we were looking for but this is how it goes Um, so Philippians chapter 2 we read a a passage of scripture be honest with you that uh, If you were in seminary picking a a text to preach, no one in your class is going to pick this text. Some people just call it Paul's travel log. Well, here's where I'm going, and he's going to go with me, and the next guy's going to go, and that's what it is. But would you stand? Let's read it. God put it in his word for a reason. Let's try to figure out how it could help our faith. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered on by news of you For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and near death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what is lacking in your service of me. Let's thank God for these two wonderful examples of faith. Father, we open your word and we run into two guys that are aren't real famous, and yet, in your eyes, 
and in your sight and for your sake did amazing and awesome things. I pray for us today that we can learn uh, lessons of leadership and character and competency from these men. And I pray that you would bolster parents as they think about raising their children, that they would raise up mighty servants for you. That above all else, that the children, the ones we just saw dedicated, those who we saw sing on this platform, that the enemy of all good things would not get one of them. That you would protect their hearts and their souls for decades of ministry. This is a dark and darkening world around us, Father. And these babies and these children, oh, they need your hand in their heart so much. So I pray for those parents and I pray for us grandparents as we help raise them for your name's sake. And may you, you bring up a mighty army, soldiers and fellow workers from our midst with our children. Bless our time in your word now and help me to teach it well. I hope you'll be pleased with what's said. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So we get a window here, at least into what kind of people Paul would want on his team. Um, and as I said before, uh, these are the kind of people you want to be raising for the cause of Christ. These, the, these qualities that I'm going to share with you and the things that you see in Timothy and Epaphroditus, if I could give a character list for my own children and my grandchildren, if they could become these two guys, that would be really special. Um, Let's start with Timothy. He is a great teammate, and in verses 19 to 24, um, it covers his life. By the way, before we get there, 2 Timothy chapter 1 um, and verse 5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and then your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. So Timothy is one of the great examples of the power of a woman. That didn't go over that well. Y'all are looking at me like, uh, not that convinced that that was all that. Listen, grandmother and mother helped shape a man. That man grows up to be a Christ follower, and the faith that they gave him is the faith that guides him. He then becomes a trusted companion of the great apostle Paul. In fact, I'm going to show you what Paul says about him here. He's unbelievable, this guy. Because of his grandmother and because of his mother. And here's Timothy. Here's the first thing. He was a man who is dependable. I really don't like my word. It's too soft. It's too mushy. Uh, he's stronger than just dependable. If you look at uh, verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like him. There is no one else like Timothy. Uh, the New American Standard translates that we have a kindred spirit. You know what Paul's saying about Timothy? His motives and my motives are the same. His desires, my desires are the same. His priorities and my priorities are the same. How can that be? Because they're both connected to the Lord Jesus. And if Timothy connects his priorities to the Lord Jesus and Paul connects his priorities to the Lord Jesus, guess what happens? They have the same priorities. They are together in spirit. 
Now notice in verse 20 what it says, and I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. No one else will care for you Philippians like this guy. I don't have anybody else that is comparable to him. He has a heart for you, but that it's the second half then that I really want to point out in verse 21. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but that's not who Timothy is. Timothy says this, Jesus' interests are my significant marching orders. In fact, the interests of my Lord are more interesting to me than my personal interest. In reality, Paul is saying, I've got a guy coming. He's not going to come right now. I need him here. He's going to get there eventually. And he's just the guy that I've been imploring you to be. Go back to chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. That's my guy, Timothy. The very character qualities that I've been commanding you to have as Christ followers, Timothy is that guy right now. Wow. That's high praise coming from a guy who kicked John Mark to the curb, right? That's high praise from a guy whose standards are not low. And so Timothy, as a teammate, is predictable in this sense. Whatever circumstances he encounters, he's going to try to find Jesus' interest first. Think about that. If he ever acts selfishly, you're going to go, that's so not like him. Wouldn't that be something if when you act selfishly, people were caught off guard? <laughs> now, all these little people that were just up here, they have no clue about that. They exist for one reason, themselves. Which is why all the parents who were up here were like this. <laughs> Do they ever stop wanting things? No! But as you grow and find Christ as your Savior, your interests are replaced with His interest. You then find a commonality with other people who have had a similar experience. And when you behave selfishly, people go, well, that's weird. That's who Timothy is. He is a guy who's predictable in this sense. In every circumstance, in every situation, in every decision, he's going to say, um, he probably has a bracelet that says WWJD on it. Some of you remember that back in the day. The book is called In His Steps, if you ever want to read it. It's a novel. It's pretty interesting. What would Jesus do in every circumstance? Ask the question. Timothy's that guy. Paul's that guy. What's the best thing for my Lord? That's what his interest is. You can count on him. Paul says, I don't have anyone else like that other than this guy. I'll tell you what, I, I, had, um, I, I forget how many, grand, how many grandsons do we have up here today. We have a bunch of them anyhow. My grandkids, I had a bunch of grandkids up here today. If they lived to that, I'd, I'd be thrilled. Nothing would make a heart happier than to say oh yeah my, my grandchild lives for Christ first in every situation they just say I wonder what Jesus would do in this situation 
Because if they ask that question, the answer will be, take care of their grandparents. <laughs> right? They're going to go, oh, man, why is that verse in there? That old guy in the corner that's drooling on him, why is he in our house? Because <laughs> you owe him. That's why. <laughs> All right. Let's auger down into a couple of these. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for you. Timothy is a man who's compassionate. His heart, having been developed in the person of Christ, You'll notice what Paul said. He's genuinely concerned. He's kind of piling up words to say this guy's not just thinking about you a little bit. He is, this is real. This is not pretend. He's not a poser. He sits here and talks about you and thinks about you. What I wrote in my notes, your best is what's in his heart. Oh, that's a rare person, isn't it? It is a rare person who looks across the table and thinks about the person across the table as more significant than the person that's sitting in their own chair. It's rare. This is the guy in Luke chapter 10, the, uh, the Samaritan guy, who sees the guy in the ditch and says, I should get off my donkey and do something about it. He wasn't the two religious guys who saw the guy in the ditch and said, I've really got more important things to do. I've got a committee meeting to go to or, or you know, we, we have an important uh, uh, a, a church meeting to discuss what color carpet we're going to put in the new uh, swimming pool when we remodel that bad boy, right? So I, I got to get to the carpet meeting because I don't have time for it. This guy gets off his donkey because he's moved by the need of his neighbor. Now, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to tip my hand. When we bought this campus, and we were trying to figure out what name were we going to put on this campus, there was a chunk of me that wanted the name Samaritan somewhere in the name of this place because I wanted this campus to be a campus full of Samaritans for our neighbors filled with compassion for the pain of the people in the ditch. Not because we're better. We've all been in the ditch. We're just happy to be out of the ditch. Christ rescued us from the ditch. Why wouldn't I give that to the guy who's still in the ditch? I have to tell you, you guys, if you listen to the news, the news will do two things for you. You ready? It'll fill you with anger or it'll fill you with fear. Because that's what gets ratings. If they can come up with a story that makes you mad, you will tune in because you love being mad. And if that isn't enough, they'll come up with something like, I heard a lady say the other day, the earth is melting. I looked out my window. I don't have to cut my grass anymore. It's going <laughs> to. And yet, you open your Bible up, and it doesn't tell you to be angry at the transgendered person. 
It doesn't tell you to be hateful to the transgendered person. It doesn't tell you to be fearful of the transgendered person. It tells you to get off your donkey and have compassion on the transgendered person. Hmm? That's the guy in the ditch in the story. If we wrote the story today, it would be the uh, headwaters person was on the donkey and he saw a transgender person in the ditch and he said, oh, I don't have time for you. And the guy who would show up would be the Methodist and take care of the trans... And we're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Oh, I'm online. I shouldn't have named the Methodist, should I? And now I've named it twice. <laughs> the hole gets deeper. I apologize to all Methodists tuning in online or who might ever see this video. I know you guys are going through a tough time right now trying to figure out stuff. Paul wanted people who had heart on his team. Hearts filled with compassion for others than themselves. Number three, he goes on to say about Timothy, uh, verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son of a, as a son with a father, he served me with the gospel. And I just used this, Paul's word here. He's a man who has proven. He is a man who has shown himself to be reliable. He has shown himself to be compassionate. He is someone that you can count on. You'll notice that his elevated position in the apostolic team is because he made himself a slave. It is always that way, isn't it, in the service of Christ. If you want to be great among men, humble yourself. And, and he made himself a slave to the gospel. He says, my, my priorities, my career choices, all the things that are important to me, I submit to the greater cause of those of my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him with my life. And this is, by the way, what Paul was praying for the Philippians back in chapter 1, verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you may be pure and blameless when Christ uh, the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes with Christ. That's who Timothy is. I'm praying that you'll become Timothy. He's that guy. He has proven. He's been examined. He's seen some things and things, and he still has his faith after going through them. Let me give you an example. First Peter chapter 1, page 1014. First Peter chapter 1. A uh, very familiar passage, but worthy of our consideration. Verse 6, uh, in this he says, you now rejoice, that is your faith. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, uh, being more precious than gold that perishes is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise Glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are trials that are out there. Timothy has been tried. He has been shown accurate. He has been shown trustworthy. He has been shown compassionate, dependable. He's a guy we can rely on. It is in this same vein, and we won't turn there, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, elders should not be new converts. 1 Timothy 3.10, deacons should be proven. We need people who have stood in the midst of trial 
and their life came out of the other side as, what Peter say, to the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. When we find that guy, that gal, we say, that's who we want on our team. That's the kind of people we want leading. Paul looks at them and he says, these are my homies. I trust these guys because I've been here with them. Now, just before we leave Timothy, I want to just circle back and make one observation um, about the guy who's writing this description. In verse 19, you'll notice he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. And then in verse 24, he says, I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also. Did you pick up the theme of Paul's life? He was in the Lord at all times. In the Lord, I, I expect to send Timothy pretty soon to you. And in the Lord, I'm going to come too. Remember where he is? Somebody tell me where Paul is. Hey, he's in jail. Facing sentencing of some kind. And while he's in prison, he goes, I'll be there. In the Lord. By the time we get to the end of this, He'll say, uh, you know, if I die, it's okay. But in the Lord, if I, I'll be there. You people mean a lot to me. There's Timothy. Now, there's a second great teammate. His name's Epaphroditus. And he's coming now. Timothy, you know, he says, I'm going to send him, you, I'm send him to you soon. Verse 25, I think it's necessary to send you Epaphroditus now it would probably make sense to believe that the letter Paul's actually writing will be in Epaphroditus' hands. He will show up with it and give it to the church. If you remember this guy, he came from the Philippian church to Paul to minister to his needs. Um, and in uh, chapter, uh, let me see if I can find it here. I'm going off script here. It's somewhere in chapter 4. And I'm at the top of the page, left-hand column. There it is. Did you, you ever do that with your Bible? You're like, I have no idea where it is, but it's on that page. It's on the left column. And then you find out it was in a completely different book. But you, you, you thought you had it right. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. The, Epaphroditus was the messenger of the church of Philippi to Paul to say, hey, we're still here with you, brother. We haven't given up on you. So they know him quite well. He is, and Paul starts to describe Epaphroditus. I thought it necessary to send him to you, and he has five things he describes him as in verse 25. He's my brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He is your messenger, and he is my minister. That's quite a description, isn't it? Think about those five things. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, which by the way in the original is the word apostle, not the uh, apostle, hold the office apostle, but apostle means a sent one, an emissary, an ambassador, if you will. He was the Philippians church's ambassador. And then he was a minister to my needs. These five things at least tell me two things about this guy. Number one, he's a team player. Look at all the language describing Epaphroditus. It's not limelight language, is it? Brother, it's very relational. Fellow, 
worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, my minister. Epaphroditus laid his life down on behalf of others. There is a relational connection that defined his life and says, from these things, I'm going to live my existence. The other thing it tells me about this guy is that he was in the arena, not in the stands. Does that make sense? He was not a guy who's casually observing faith while other people live it. The old, the old saying about church that it's 22 people, it's like football. Churches like football, 22 men desperately in need of rest, being observed by 22,000 people desperately in need of exercise. You know, you, you, you go to a, 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 this crazy NFL thing, and you got a bunch of really overweight, beer-guzzling dudes with their face painted, and they think they're the ones exuding the energy. And the guys on the field are smashing into each other, and they're carrying them off on stretchers, and their body parts are getting twisted and broken and the guys in the stands are going, yeah, I'm the guy getting it done. And by the end of the game, they can't even say that because the thing they've been getting done is spraining their right elbow from tilting it frequently in that moment. And some of you will understand that. And from the looks of most of you, you're church people and you have no idea what I'm talking about. Epaphroditus is on the field. Look at his description again fellow worker, fellow soldier. He is, he is your messenger. He is my minister. This guy is not casually sitting on the sidelines trying to see what the game's all about, is it? Can I poke you a little bit? Some of you are guests today. Let this roll off, and you may never want to come back. We need people to get off the sidelines and the stands and get down in the arena. If this campus is going to become what I just described it as, a, a teeming place of Samaritans, well then the Samaritans have to get off their donkey. I let it hang there for a moment. Because normally I say something like, get off their King James version of a donkey. That one will catch up to you in a little bit. And get into the arena. Because the arena is where it's happening, not sitting in the bleachers. And we'll see this in the next thing. So this Epaphroditus guy, he's trusted. You can count on him. He's in there slugging it out. But what happens to him while he's in the arena should not be missed. And I gave the word, he's invested. Verse 26, he has been longing for you and has been distressed because of you. Those two words describe the inner working of his soul, don't they? In fact, the word for longing was back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul talked and he said, For God is my witness how I yearn. Same word. 
I yearn for you with all of my affection. That's how Paul described himself as he's praying. And he describes Epaphroditus as a guy who is longing for you. When you're in the arena, you ready? That's where your passion will grow. If you stay in the bleachers and watch people in the arena, you have a casual uh, uh, relationship with what's going on in the arena, your heart will not be moved by what's happening in the arena. You think it is, because your face is painted. We'll skip the other part. But your face is painted, and you're cheering them on. Way to go. But the folks who go in the locker room, the folks who participate in the conflict, something happens to them when they're in that arena, and their hearts grow, and their passion for the conflict grows, and their passion for the reason for the conflict grows. And this guy longs for these people. He's distressed because he's not there. His heart is developing because he's in the fight and he has to get back to them. By the way, when I was thinking about this. Can you imagine um, Epaphroditus had to be a significant participant and active member of the church of Philippi and then they send him away. How many things was he doing in the arena at Philippi that no longer are getting attention? Someone else has to step up. Someone else has to jump in. Someone else has to follow the example. This trustworthiness and investedness means that he will risk all, which is the third moment, and that is that he's a very committed man. You drop down to verse 29, and it says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. In fact, he was risking his life to complete what is lacking for you. A brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister gets in the arena and invests his life, and as he does that, he realizes what the purpose of life is. And it is to bring honor and glory to his creator, God the Father. How do I do that? I lay my life down for it. I inconvenience myself. The text suggests that he risked his life. The text suggests that that was a calculated decision on his part. It wasn't something that just happened to him. It's something he said, this is worth laying my life down for. We've seen this over already in the book of Philippians, right? Paul said in verse 21 of chapter 1, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't even know whether it's better to be here with you. I'm certain that if I died, it's better than being here with you. But for your sake, I'm going to stay. And this man, Epaphroditus, not a famous man, I don't know that we know much more about him than this passage in the whole New Testament. And he is a man who is willing to risk his life for the cause of Christ. Your God is watching your and my life looking for soldiers and workers and messengers and ministers and brothers who would say, 
His glory is more significant than my interest. And if he wants me to die for his namesake, I hope I'm worthy of that when the moment comes. Epaphroditus said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to calculate this out. And he says, yep, it's worth risking my life for. And he did. He almost died so that he could fulfill what God asked him to do. So those are two guys. Hey, moms, you want to raise those two men? If you raised either one of those men, would you not go, this is the glory of my life. There is nothing greater than to see a young man or a young woman who grabs a hold of their faith with such conviction that they're willing to lay their life down. You'll be a challenge to your parents, young people. You, you, you'll challenge them to be more arena-ish and less uh, grandstand folks. They will look at you and marvel at what God is doing in you. Now the results of having a great team are two. Paul writes in verse 28, I am more than eager to send him therefore so that you may rejoice and I may be less anxious, which I think is a little bit of an unfortunate translation because anxious kind of looks like non-trusting. I'll get to that in a second. But his influence is this. When, When Epaphroditus is around, you have multiplied joy in the people he comes in contact with. How much delight does it bring you when you meet someone who cares enough about you to put your interest ahead of themselves? By the way, I just described mother, right? Isn't that what mothers do? They always put someone else's interest in front of them. What is it like to encounter someone who says, you're more important to me. How may I serve you? What could I do for you? Could I lay my life down for you? And you go, whoa, this is a friend indeed. This is someone who is trustworthy. This is someone I want to be around. This is someone that I treasure. This is someone that brings me joy. The influence of this type of character is that it spills over into other people's lives. And so much so that you'll notice that Paul says, I'm eager to send him to you. He has gained my loyalty in return. I have seen this man in action, and I know who I'm sending to you, and I know what he's going to do for you because I know Epaphroditus. He almost died for this great cause of the gospel. I can't wait for him to get back. Epaphroditus shows back up. They read the letter. This is really cool. By the way, Epaphroditus, you know the, uh, the outreach to widows is really lacking since you've been gone. I mean, that was your thing. Remember that? Yeah, you mean you klutzes couldn't get that done? Oh, man, and it would just, just never been. Could you come back and help us? And all of a sudden, he starts filling the holes in his old church again. You'll notice, too, that what happens in Paul is that Paul has separation sorrow from the Philippians. It's translated as uh, anxious, which could have a negative con- connotation to it, but I don't think that's what it means. I think he means, I, I, I love you so much, I'm just so sad that I can't be there with you myself. 
It's not that he's wringing his hands going, oh man, what's going to happen? That's not it. It's just that he's so filled with sorrow because he doesn't get to be where he wants to be. He's, he's being arrested for the cause of Christ. He's chained to a soldier for the cause. That, that's what he's supposed to do today. Doesn't seem right, does it? The great apostles to-do list today, he wakes up and goes, well, let's see, what am I going to do today? Be chained to a Roman soldier. Number two. There is no number two. But he can't help but think about all the people that he shared the gospel with who responded. He sits in that cell and he goes, oh, I wish I could be in Philippi to visit my friends and see how they're doing and, and bring a good word and hear of their faith and well, I'll send Epaphroditus. I know what he will do. And it takes a little edge off the sorrow. Okay, that's the idea. Their reward is interesting. Verse 29. Receive them. Receive him in the Lord with joy and honor such men. I think what Paul's telling the Philippians, Epaphroditus is worthy of your allegiance. You can trust him, receive him well, honor him for all that he's done. Let's not forget he who laid his life down for Christ. I'll give you a nameless guy, uh, not nameless to us, a fellow named Dick Kelly. Uh, Dick, uh, when I was youth pastor at Blackhawk, again, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, there were no cell phones, there were no PCs. Um, it was a glorious time. Um, TikTok was what a clock did, <laughs> right? Um, Dick ran what's now called ACJC. He was the executive director of our juvenile uh, incarceration. It's delightful. He worked for uh, the judge and um, decided he wanted to be a missionary. Left his career, joined Slavic Gospel Association, and began helping bring the gospel to Russia, which had just opened up. The walls come down. It was very interesting. And I've traveled with Dick to Russia on several occasions. What most of you don't know is that Dick was a courier of great amounts of cash. I didn't know that either until I traveled with him, and he had a quarter of a million dollars in cash in a little bag he carried around. And uh, I was on a plane, and he handed a barf bag to one of the other people we were traveling with. And I go, that's kind of a strange thing to give someone. He goes, well, it's got $50,000 in it. I said, can I have a barf bag? <laughs> I didn't ask that. I was looking out the windows, really worried about the fact that the tires had no tread, and this was a Russian airliner, and it looked like death was imminent just by, this is not going to work. 
What you don't know about Dick Kelly is that every time he went into Russia, he was interrogated. He never lied once about bringing cash into the country. He claimed every dollar and said, yeah, I have $300,000. Yeah, I have a half a million dollars. And it was money that you and I gave or other churches for the cause of the pastors that were there because the banking system wasn't real reliable. They're called thieves, kind of like banking system in America, but it's just a little bit different there. Uh, I just offended every banker in the room. I apologize. We will never know how many times Dick Kelly's life was put on the line for the cause of Christ as he carried that bag of money because they would take him in a room and interrogate him. Then they, every time they handed him the money back, they never took a dollar. But all they ever had to do was have their cousin, uh, Ivan, or Ivan, or I, I tried to think of a good Russian name, Sergey. I can say that one better. Their cousin Sergey at the curb with a cell phone and say, Hey, short little American dude's got $300,000. Kill him, take the money. Dick stood tall for the cause of Christ. Recently passed away. One of our missionaries. Kind of an Epaphroditus sort of guy. Someone you can trust. We should honor such people, shouldn't we? We should rise up and say, you're too amazing for words. You guys, let's each of us seek to become a Timothy or an Epaphroditus. You don't have to be fancy. Maybe you're not the guy that stands up here and do what I do. That's okay. That's not, there's so many things to do for the cause of Christ. The arena is large. Your imagination are the only boundaries. And let's raise up our young people with integrity and honor and let's watch them change the world because the world needs them desperately. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for your grace. We thank you for Timothy. We thank you for Epaphroditus. We thank you for Dick Kelly. The names could go on and on. We are amazed at the work you've done and continue to do in this world. With the satanic opposition being so strong. Thank you for watching over us. Let us magnify your, your great name on our campus here in Fort Wayne. May our city somehow try to figure out what fills us with compassion for them and dedication to you. I pray for our church, Lord, that we be arena people, not bleacher people. Let it be so, please. Grow us in your namesake and for your glory. Amen and amen. God bless you.